0: Good evening, everybody. Uh, good to see you all. Um, I'm going to stick on the uh, theme of today with the London Marathon and start talking about uh, running. Uh, if we could have the first slide up. Thank you. Um, <coughs> I know, uh, so you can see this is obviously Mo Farah, but I wanted to talk more about uh, somebody called Alan Wilkinson. Um, Now, when Mo Farah arrived in London, uh, fleeing his country at eight years old, he was equipped with only three English phrases. Excuse me, where is the toilet? And come on then. Um, Incidentally, that last one is uh, one of my daughter's favourite phrases, which is really cute when she goes, come on, Daddy. Um, But I digress. Um, So he arrived in the country, um, fleeing conflict, knowing very little English, Um, and this man called Alan Wilkinson was a PE teacher at the school that he went to, uh, and he took him under his wing. He saw Mo's potential as a runner, and he entered Mo for a cross-country race that he finished uh, second in. A few weeks later, he finished fourth in the county cross-country championship, and soon afterwards, Mr Wilkinson told him that he could run for Great Britain. Um, Mo Farah's athletics career developed over the next few years at school and Mr Wilkinson, uh, he took him to athletics uh, tournaments around London and he used the time driving around uh, the M25 to uh, give Mo English lessons. And we now know that Farah has gone on to be probably the greatest long-distance runner that this country has produced and has inspired countless people to put on a pair of running shoes uh, and hit the road. Uh, It's also... um, in part, inspired uh, my friend uh, Ed to do the London Marathon today. Um, I'm not quite sure why he's doing the Usain Bolt thing rather than the Mobot. I hope that he didn't sprint. I was following him on my uh, London Marathon app, and he did it in just over five hours. So it, it wasn't he wasn't sprinting, uh, but he did it. And actually, uh, Ed inspired me to start running a few years ago, and I think it's amazing what he's done today. And um, Yeah, my wife probably won't like me saying it, but that'd be really cool to do the London Marathon one day. But what if Mo Farah hadn't allowed his life to be shaped by his early experiences and built on the work of Alan uh, Watkinson? What if he hadn't allowed that encounter to have shaped him? Or what if that encounter hadn't happened at all? Where would Mo Farah be today? Where would Ed be today? Where would I be today? Probably a little bit more unfit, but that's about all. But clearly, Alan Wilkinson had a profound impact. Uh, That encounter had a profound impact on Mo Farah's life. And through encountering Jesus, God wants to transform our lives. And we're invited to enter into a relationship with the resurrected Jesus and be truly changed as a result. But I was thinking about this and my experiences as a Christian. Uh, over the past however many years. So I made a commitment when I was uh, 18, almost 18 years old. And I thought, why do our experiences of encountering Jesus often leave us unchanged or at best uh, mean that we have renewed faith and passion just for a short time before we forget or slip back into old ways or uh, just kind of get back to, to routine life? Or why do we sometimes avoid, deliberately avoid, encountering Jesus at all? Perhaps we are scared, like the disciples were in the upper room. Those disciples were scared that they would soon experience the same fate that Jesus um, experienced at the hands of the Jewish authorities. They'd locked the door in that upper room they were in hiding for fear of the Jewish leaders. And I wonder if sometimes we're afraid of witnessing uh, for Christ in our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces, at our universities. And I just want to share with you uh, something that's going on in my life at the moment uh, around this, um, and it's something which I've never really struggled with before, but is a particular issue now. So I started a new job uh, back in August last year, and the, the person who kind of did the job before me. It wasn't quite the same job, but kind of did the same job uh, before me. Um, it seems didn't do a very good job. Uh, he left a legacy of um, a, a product that I'm now responsible for, which has a lot of faults, and he doesn't have a very good reputation uh, in the business that, that I work in. And people, I haven't actually come across anybody who has a good word to say about him, unfortunately. Uh, Now his name is Matthew as well and uh, at work he is known as Bad Matthew and at the moment I'm known as Good Matthew and hopefully that will continue for for some time yet. Um, But what's interesting is that Bad Matthew was a Christian and when he left the business uh, he went off to train to be a vicar in the Church of England. So I'm coming into this organisation now with this legacy um, and I'm really worried that that experience of that person in that workplace gave my colleagues and my boss a bad impression of what a Christian is and how a Christian um, acts in the workplace uh, and conducts their lives. Um, and it's not, you know, in terms of the people who I work with directly, it's, it's a, quite a small number of people, and I don't think any of them um, are Christians. So I'm really struggling to be open about my faith um, and to uh, to share my faith and to, yeah, just be me, really, uh, in a way that I haven't uh, struggled with before um, because I'm worried that if everybody knows that I'm a Christian as well, they'll think, oh, not another one. What mess is he going to make now? And I'm sure that probably won't happen, but that fear, I've got that fear at the moment, so I'm wrestling with that in the workplace. So sometimes, maybe... We, uh, we don't build on our encounters with Jesus that have happened throughout our lives because we're scared uh, for whatever reason like those disciples were. Perhaps we don't seek encounters with Christ because, uh, out of fear that he might reject us because of our sin. And I think that Jesus was well aware of that when he appeared to the disciples in that upper room. Because after they'd got over the shock of Jesus miraculously appearing in front of them... They might have expected rebuke because um, many of them had deserted Jesus on that Good Friday and they were locked away in hiding in this upper room, not wanting anybody to know who they were or who their Lord and Master was. Where were many of them at Jesus' trial? When he was hanging on the cross or when his body had to be removed? Some of them were there. Lots of them, lots of Jesus' followers were conspicuous by their absence uh, over the course of that weekend. And again, this is something that, that I can relate to generally. Uh, sometimes um, I think, well, why should God forgive me time and time again, day after day after day? Why should God want to, to use me uh, to, to grow his kingdom or, or do whatever um, because, uh, because of you know the, the sins that, that I commit? So I think sometimes we don 't seek encounters with Christ in the first place because uh, out of fear that he might reject us because of uh, because of our sin or perhaps like Thomas we doubt Thomas was a man no different from us faith for him uh, initially seemed daunting and impossible uh, after easter sunday he'd got no experience of the empty tomb uh, nor had he seen or heard the resurrected jesus on easter sunday and Thomas's faith throughout the Gospels, I think, can mimic our own in so many ways, and it certainly does my own. It's a bit of a, a roller coaster ride. So, if we just kind of cast our eyes back over John's Gospel and um, look at the person of Thomas and, and who he was, so uh, in chapter eleven, uh, Thomas was loyal. He showed his loyalty when he roused his fellow disciples to go with Jesus to Judea to see Lazarus's family. Judea being a location that would have held great danger for Jesus at the time. And Thomas said, let us also go that we may die with him. In chapter 14, um, uh, Thomas shows his ignorance and misunderstanding of Jesus' teachings. When Jesus is talking about heaven and the kingdom of God, Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way even after Jesus had explained uh, the, the concept of the kingdom of God uh, to them? In this chapter 20 we, uh, that we're looking at tonight, Jesus uh, Thomas was absent on that Easter Sunday, so the first part of the passage. He chose not to be with his fellow disciples. We can guess at the reasons for that. It might have been for, through fear or shame or complacency. We don't know. But ultimately, he removed himself deliberately from that fellowship. And I think, again, that's something that, uh, that I can relate to on occasion. And a week later... Thomas doubts the testimonies of his friends that his master had risen from the dead, saying, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So maybe you can empathise with Thomas's rollercoaster faith, or maybe your faith is a bit more stable than that. But I think that we can all at least empathise with his doubt, since we've all been there at some point we will inevitably have expressed doubt before we made our first commitment to follow Christ, whether that be doubting the existence of God, the claims of Jesus, his resurrection, or many other things of God that we need to have faith in. Even when we follow Christ, we're not immune from doubt, I don't think. Sometimes our lives can be turned upside down when a loved one dies or when we're made redundant um, or when a marriage breaks down. Big life events can sometimes cause us to to question God uh, and to doubt his presence or his love or his provision in our lives. Sometimes we're swayed by secular opinion and rhetoric. Um, The atheist voice in in society is very prominent these days. Sometimes we can just doubt when we think about the big questions of life. But in my experience, uh, when we doubt, it can often lead to renewed faith. When Thomas finally witnesses the resurrected Jesus, he proclaims my Lord and my God. And they were words not said in astonishment, but rather a confession of heartfelt belief. As the Christian scholar George Beasley Murray put it, the most outrageous doubter of the resurrection of Jesus utters the greatest confession of the Lord who rose from the dead. And again, in my experience, my doubt leads me to question more, to think more, to read more, to investigate more, to pray more and to meditate on God's word more and usually my faith is strengthened as a result and last time I I preached I shared with you uh, a story about um, something that happened in my last job where I went for a a promotion that I thought was nailed on and I didn't get it and it kind of caused me to question where I was going in my career and all of that kind of stuff. And uh, and kind of question what God wanted to say to me, and I spent four. I told you that I spent forty days uh, keeping a journal and kind of thinking about that, and and, and um, you know reading the Bible every day and, and trying to listen to what God was saying to me. And through that, He taught me lots and lots of things about my attitude to to work and um, my value uh, in Him and, and what that depended on, and all of those kinds of things. And I shared some things that I wrote down. So through that process of me questioning and thinking and praying and meditating and doubting actually my faith was strengthened and my understanding of who I am in God and who God is was enriched by that experience so there are lots of explanations and lots of reasons why we can find it difficult to have our faith renewed and find and have our lives truly transformed by encountering Jesus but the passage that we've read tonight can help us um, seek out encounters with him and have our lives renewed and transformed as a result. And I'd like to briefly look at four signs of encounters with Jesus based on this passage that we have read tonight so that we can look out for them in our lives and respond accordingly. So firstly, when we encounter Jesus, he does not condemn us. The disciples, as I said, might have expected a bit of a dressing down uh, on Easter Sunday. Uh, They might have expected Jesus to reprimand them for deserting him just a few days before. And yet notice what Jesus says, not once, but twice. And again, the following week, when he meets Thomas, he says, peace be with you. Jesus immediately calms their fears. Saying peace be with you was a standard Hebrew greeting. So it wasn't unusual for, for Jesus to say that when he was greeting people. We see that uh, all through the Old Testament. We see it in uh, letters of the New Testament. And it's still a, a, a common greeting uh, today. Um, but for the disciples, those words held more significance and held weight. For them and for Thomas, it was more than just a greeting. And it was, it was a greeting that calmed their fears, yes, but it also summed up the essence of Jesus' work and his presence in the world. Earlier in John's gospel, Jesus promised his disciples that his peace would be his gift to them. So in chapter 14, verse 27, he said, "Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give you, give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid." And in chapter 16, verse 33. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus had promised his disciples peace and on that Easter Sunday he delivered his gift and he delivers that gift to us as well. Because when we encounter Christ, he doesn't condemn us. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, our sins are forgiven and we can be in relationship with him naturally we will carry baggage with us. we Will carry baggage about uh, the guilt, uh, about the things that we know we've done wrong, our attitudes towards certain people, the things in life that aren't of God and yet that we place a great deal of value upon. And yet Jesus doesn't condemn us. Instead, he gives us his peace. And he gives us his peace because he's seeking to change our hearts and lives. So we're transformed from a place of peace and not from condemnation. Secondly, when we encounter Jesus, we will be sure it's him. The disciples saw the evidence and they were overjoyed. Thomas saw the evidence and he gave a heartfelt confession of belief. I think that belief in the resurrection is a reasonable choice. We don't have the same privilege as Thomas did. But we do have the eyewitness accounts that are set out in the Gospels. We do have the testimonies of the apostles who then risked life and limb to spread the good news far and wide. And whose testimonies founded the Christian church that we're a part of today. There are two themes going on in this chapter. Right, The first theme is the historical evidence of the resurrection. And the second theme is the nature of what it means to to be Jesus' disciples in the era of that resurrection. And for those of you who've heard me speak a few times before, you might be surprised that I'm not going to dwell too much on the historical evidence of the resurrection. Um, But if you are interested, I can recommend a couple of books that kind of go into that in uh, a lot more depth uh, and have really kind of helped me and I find really interesting. So the first book uh, is is quite a famous one by Frank Morrison called Who Moved the Stone? And the second one uh, is by Lee Strobel called The Case for Christ. And I believe they've just made that into a film, which seems a bit odd, but um, it's a great book anyway. Um, Incidentally, both of these books were written by men who were initially very sceptical, either uh, of the existence of Jesus full stop or, in the case of Who Moved the Stone About, the actual resurrection of Jesus. Um, And they kind of set out almost to, to disprove the evidence uh, but in researching in talking to experts uh, in doing that that work they come to the conclusion that uh, what we read in the Gospels is true and trustworthy uh, and explain the reasons for that so if you're interested in going into a bit more depth about the historical evidence of the resurrection then um, they're two good places to start in my book, no pun intended um, So, uh, yeah, we can encounter Jesus in lots of different ways, through reading scripture, through worship, through prayer. But when we do, we will be sure it's him because of his transformational love and the effect that that encounter can have on our lives. So going back to my, my points. So when we encounter Jesus, we're not condemned. We will be sure it's him. And thirdly, we will be commissioned So when the disciples encountered Jesus on that Easter Sunday, Jesus said, as the father has sent me, I am sending you. Throughout John's gospel, Jesus is described as the one who is sent by God. And his final task, as we read here, was to commission his followers. His disciples, and that includes us sitting here tonight, become Jesus's agents in the world, witnessing to the reality of God. And there are obvious echoes here with uh, the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel, where Jesus says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. What this says to me is that an encounter with Jesus is never just a warm, fuzzy moment It's always connected with a commission to go and share God's love with others through actions and words. We see that through the encounters that Jesus had with people throughout the Gospels, but even more so after his resurrection. If we have an encounter with Christ and do nothing about it other than look back with fond memories, then we're missing the point and we're missing out on everything that God has in store for us. This is something that I saw through the years when I was um, a leader at AYF uh, and i 'm sure is common in churches throughout the country up and down the country today uh, with people of all ages. so people in, in my experience, teenagers who went through YF made heartfelt commitments to follow Christ, worshiped wholeheartedly, delivered epilogue talks, threw themselves into it, and yet when i 've kept in touch with them in the years afterwards um, their encounters with Jesus just don't seem to have that long-lasting and transformational impact on their lives. They look back with great fondness on their time at YF. Um, They have some great memories. They love the fellowship. They might talk with fondness about the, the worship times that they had. But actually it's sometimes hard to see that transformational impact that those encounters, early encounters with Jesus, had on their lives. So I'll say it again, if we we have an encounter with Christ and do nothing about it other than look back with fond memories, then we're missing the point and missing out on everything that God has in store for us. So my encouragement to you, especially those of you in YF, who are encountering Jesus, uh, sometimes, you know, for the first times and having these amazing experiences, um, allow yourselves to be transformed, uh, truly transformed, have your lives transformed. Have, may those encounters have deep significance in your lives, like they have done for so many who've gone before you. And fourthly, when we encounter Jesus, we are given the Holy Spirit. After Jesus commissioned his disciples, we read uh, in this passage that he breathed his spirit on them, empowering them to do uh, what he asked of them. The spirit, suggested through his ministry, promised in the upper room and symbolised at the cross, is now given to his disciples in a provocative and in a very personal way. At Jesus' baptism, God empowered him with the Holy Spirit in order to fulfil the ministry laid out for him. The spirit strengthened him when he was in the wilderness uh, and it empowered him to do uh, miracles throughout his ministry. And the spirit gave him the strength he needed to go to the cross, even though uh, we read that he asked God to take that burden from him. And we are given the same spirit today. There's no difference. There's no difference in the spirit that Jesus received from his father. There's no difference in the spirit that the disciples received on Easter Sunday. We receive that same spirit today. Being commissioned by Jesus and receiving the Holy Spirit go hand in hand. God doesn't expect us to go it alone. So I mentioned earlier that uh, I think the resurrection is, uh, belief in the resurrection is a reasonable choice. Belief in the resurrection is also a necessary decision if we are to follow Jesus. Jesus isn't an idea. Jesus is a person. Jesus has left marks that we can see and measure and trust without the resurrection, our faith falls apart and Jesus simply becomes one more Jewish leader with some good ideas. But discipleship is not, on, is not defined only by belief in Jesus, but also by the indwelling of him in us by the Holy Spirit. When we receive Christ into our lives, we also receive the Spirit, and to be filled with the Spirit is to experience the living presence of Jesus Christ within us. When John writes uh, one of his letters uh, later on in the Bible, he states, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his own spirit. So God living in us is, is a really personal thing. Jesus has given us, given of his own spirit to live in us. Faith in Christ is personal and it's transformational since it's dependent on a person who has demonstrated himself powerful and trustworthy. So as forgiven people, not under condemnation, may we see and know Jesus for who he truly is. May we be willing and ready to share his love with others in the knowledge that we are empowered by his Holy Spirit. May our encounters with Jesus resonate in our lives and the lives of those around us. And may those encounters have eternal significance. Amen.